So thank you, Noam, for a spotlight onto the invisible hand. So perhaps we can now see it in action a little more clearly. But uh, you've raised so many questions. I know that there are a number of questions in the audience that we'll be able to take some uh, questions from, and I hope you'll be able to uh, share further insights. So please, question on, on the far side over there. Oh, hi. Um, my name's... Hi. too well, so you may have to translate for me. Yeah. Okay. Hi. Um, I'm Guy. I'm a student here at UCL, and uh, I took part last term in the UCL occupation, along with uh, quite a number of other students I met. And, um, uh, you mentioned the, the, the attack on public education in this country and the, the privatisation of education. Uh, we were all very happy to receive a message of support from you last term. Uh, which you sent to the occupying students. So I'd just like to say thanks for that, firstly. Um, secondly, I mean, what we're seeing, I think, is the uh, kick-started by the student movement is hopefully what's becoming a much more broad-based movement against austerity in this country, linking up with the trade unions, uh, building to a big demonstration in central London on March 26th. Now, obviously, there's parallels with what's happening in Wisconsin, where there's a, the economic crisis is being used to sort of carry through a politics of wage repression, and you're seeing a fight back against um, that there as well. So I just wanted to ask you, what do you think are the prospects for these uh, kind of uh, emergent movements against uh, austerity? And what do you think the lessons that can be learned from earlier sort of fights for economic justice? Well, you know, in uh, economic theory, there's a name for the policies that Europe is following, England too, uh, namely imposing austerity in the middle of a recession. It's called the Herbert Hoover Principle. Uh, that's exactly what led to the World Depression. It was uh, reinstated again in 1936 under the advice of you know, the business pressure. It led to another recession. Uh, one well-known economist uh, observed that European leaders might uh, perhaps be charged with violating um, uh, an ethical and, in fact, a legal principle, namely experimentation with human beings, cannot be taken without their consent. Okay. This is an experiment to see if the kind of policies which have always been a disaster in the past and which are likely to be a disaster for good reasons again, whether these policies which have humans as their experimental subjects, uh, whether they should be permitted. Well, that's up to people who don't believe in the Moisher doctrine to respond to. As far as education is concerned, I don't really feel qualified to talk about the situation here. You obviously know much more about it than I do. Uh, in the United States, it's quite interesting. As I think I may have mentioned in that letter of support that you, uh, you brought up uh, about, uh, I guess, about a year ago, uh, it, by accident, I happened to be giving some talks in Mexico at the National University, and I went straight from there to California, to the Bay Area, more talks. Uh, these are kind of, you know, they're not the exact opposites in terms of the economy. California should be the richest place in the world. Uh, Mexico is not the poorest country in the world, but it's a pretty poor, poor country. Uh, the National University in Mexico has a couple hundred thousand students, at quite a high level. Uh, good facilities, you know, engaged students, uh, 
Uh, salaries, of course, are much lower than the United States, but it functions quite well. It's free. Uh, the, uh, uh, ten years ago, there was an attempt by the government to raise tuition slightly. It was a student strike, a national student strike. The government backed down. It's still free. Okay, that's one of the poorer countries in the world. You go to California, one of the richest places in the world, uh, it had uh, the greatest public education system in the world. It was uh, excellent. You know. It's being systematically destroyed. This has been going on since the 1970s, very systematically, deliberately, uh, for um, reasons that, in fact, had been articulated. It has nothing to do with economic necessity. These two comparisons should suffice to show that. There are many others like them. So it's not an economic necessity, but uh, other reasons. Uh, reasons having to do with the vicious cycle that I described. Uh, and uh, it's having its effects. Uh, next year, for the first year, the public universities, like the great universities, Berkeley, UCLA, and so on, uh, they're getting more of their income from tuition than from the state. And in fact, that's true of most of the state, college, the state universities in the country, Massachusetts too, where I am. Well, these are deliberate policy choices uh, designed, they are designed essentially to privatize the major universities. So very likely the stars in the system like Berkeley and UCLA and uh, maybe San Diego, they'll probably be privatized. They're, they're almost like Ivy League universities today, huge tuition, big endowments and so on. So they'll probably be privatized and the rest of the system will just uh, shrink. That was a very good system. Uh, and of course, uh, that has uh, dire effects for the future economy. But again, that's an externality. In a, insofar as market systems apply, they do to an extent, you don't consider them. Uh, Short-term gain is what matters. Uh, so that's, uh, that's happening all over the country. And the same is happening with the public schools. Uh, so there's major pressure, which Obama's contributing to as well, to privatize the public school system, uh, what are called charter schools, which you know, are still paid for by the public, but they're out of the public education system. There's plenty of studies of them. They, they do roughly as well as comparable public schools, even though they have many advantages, like they don't have to run special education programs, uh, they don't have unionized teachers and so on, but no special performance gains. Uh, and that's a way of, uh, undermining public education, uh, which has a kind of a deep purpose behind it. Uh, it's very much like the effort to destroy Social Security. There's a major effort, it's been going on for years, to try to destroy the Social Security system. Uh, it's claimed, uh, every open the newspaper, say, read the New York Times, the editorials will tell you we've got this huge deficit problem, and so we have to uh, deal with uh, entitlements. Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, and not waste our energy on other things. Social Security contributes zero to the deficit, zero. It comes out of payroll taxes, okay? It's got, first of all, and furthermore, it's pretty well funded for decades in advance, and a little tinkering would fund it forever. But that's uh, gotta be killed. Uh, Medicare and Medicaid, it's true, but the reason for that is something that they won't mention. It's because of the privatized healthcare system, which is extremely inefficient. Now, the U.S. spends about 
twice as much per capita as every other comparable country uh, on health care, and the outcomes are among the poorest. And if you look at the privatized, unregulated health care system, you can see why. But you're not allowed to touch the financial institutions, the insurance companies, and so on, so that's kind of like off the agenda. Uh, if the United States had a health care system comparable to other industrial countries, uh, not only would there not be a deficit, there'd actually be a surplus. Uh, the, about half the deficit in addition to that is military spending. But those things are, you know, off the agenda. You have to go after Social Security. Uh, why Social Security? It's extremely efficient. I mean, administrative costs are practically zero, uh, but it has a couple of deficiencies. It's no use whatsoever to privilege people. Uh, you know, so you get a, you know, some billionaire gets another small amount of money, it doesn't make any difference, can't even notice it. But it's, it's a sustenance for most of the population, especially those who've been wiped out by the uh, fiscal catastrophe. It doesn't pay that much, but it pays enough to get you by. Uh, beyond that, it has a ideological problem, uh, which is never discussed, but I think it's quite crucial. Uh, actually, has to do with that message from uh, Kamal Abbas to the workers of Wisconsin that I mentioned. Uh, Social Security is based on the principle of solidarity. You're supposed to care if the disabled widow across town has enough food to eat, and that has to be driven out of people's heads. You're supposed to be concerned just about yourself. Same defect in the public education system. Like, I don't have kids in school anymore, so if I follow the rules, I'm not supposed to care if there's a public, I don't want to pay taxes for public education. But if you're infected by this disease of uh, solidarity, you care if a kid across the street can go to school. Now that's got to be driven out of people's heads. Uh, same reason for the attack on unions. So you get these massive attacks. And I think that's what's happening to the public education system. Uh, you know better than I whether that applies here, but I wouldn't be surprised. Thank you. Another question. Just sir, at the front. Um, thanks a lot for your talk, Professor. You've been a major inspiration for me, so thank you for all your work as well. Um, I did have a question to ask you with regards to um, popular resistance in the Middle East. So, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but your position um, re regarding the BDS movement um, uh, is one of ambivalence, or I think you actually oppose certain aspects of it. And if I'm correct, um, it's on the grounds that you feel that if we should be applying that standard to Israel, we should be applying it to American goods as well. And it appears to me that, um, you know, there's a question of feasibility that surely comes into play here. Um, I think it's feasible to, to, to boycott Israeli goods, but, you know, life would be practically unimaginable without American goods. Um, and so I'd like to know, in, 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 in your opinion, how, how you balance that aspect yeah. when you're making your uh, The BDS movement, in case some of you aren't tuned in, is the boycott, divestment, sanctions movement about Israel. Okay. There is a story that circulates, which is what you repeated, that I'm opposed to it. And that's kind of understandable. That's an interesting, it's an interesting fact about the popular movements. I mean, we kind of live in a Twitter generation where anything that goes beyond 180 characters uh, doesn't exist and can't be understood, uh, literally. Actually, I was involved in the BDS movement before it even crystallized. 
uh, 10 years ago, about five minutes before it started. And I think it's extremely important. I've always supported it, I always advocated it, I still do. But any tac it's a tactic, it's not a principle. And if you're serious about choice of tactics, you ask a couple of questions. The one question you ask is, what's the effect on the victims? It's not the only question, but you certainly have to ask at least that. Well, in some cases, the choice of tactics is helpful to the victims. For example, if the EU, which is a major importer of uh, goods from the settlements, if the EU were to stop importing goods from the Israeli settlements, which are illegal, uncontroversially, if it, and hence participating in illegal acts, if they would do that, it'd be good for the victims. Uh, similarly, if they would follow the uh, advice of Amnesty International and uh, declare an arms embargo on Israel, that'd be good for the victims, uh, even more so for the United States. So these are fine tactics. On the other hand, suppose that you uh, say, I'm going to boycott Tel Aviv University. Well, there's an obvious response that's going to come to that. Uh, why don't you boycott Harvard? Harvard has a much worse record than Tel Aviv University. And uh, that's going to be the immediate response, and it's unanswerable, you know, it's basically correct. And uh, the effect is that uh, you're giving a gift to hardliners. That's harmful to the victims. You don't pick your tactics in such a way that it's going to be a gift to the most hardline advocates of repression and violence. Uh, that should be automatic. Uh, and, you know, these are debates that go on in activist movements all the time. So let's go back to, say, the 1960s. Uh, in, you know, most of you aren't enough, old enough to remember, but some of you are. Uh, in, the United, uh, in the activist movements in the United States in the late 60s, there were groups like the famous weathermen who decided that the way to uh, express their opposition to the war was to go out and uh, break windows and uh, you know, beat people up and so on and so forth. The Vietnamese were very strongly opposed to that. What they advised all the time is to carry out nonviolent tactics. In fact, what they favored, and they said so, was things like uh, you know, women standing quietly in front of uh, the graves of American soldiers. That's what they wanted. Now, those are tactics that help, but they don't make you feel good. It makes you feel good, apparently, if you can go out and break windows of banks. Uh, but uh, as far as the victims are concerned, that's just harmful. All it does is build up support for the war, which is exactly what it did. Uh, so, uh, and, and those questions arise constantly. You have to distinguish feel-good tactics from do-good tactics. If you can't make that distinction, don't even pretend to be involved in solidarity movements. I mean, that's kind of the minimum, you know, then come other questions. And I think those uh, questions arise in the BDS movement too. Unless, if you, you know, they're kind of suppressed in a slogan-based system in which you have a catechism and you repeat it. But if you think about the matter, those questions are always going to arise anywhere. You know, whatever tactical choices you make, you, know, you could have debates about what the consequences are, but at least you have to recognize that those issues arise. And I think that's critical in this case. We have time for a couple more questions. The lady there, the, uh, uh, back. yes, you. Thank you. Um, um, 
Hello. Uh, sorry, I'm a bit nervous. Um, you mentioned the, um, the nuclear weapons free zone, uh, as well as the, kind of the situation with uh, the military bases in uh, Diego Garcia. Um, but obviously here in the UK and in the United States, the uh, arms companies, defense industry is very closely linked to uh, defense uh, ministries. Um, and I guess my question is, in light of this week, uh, Henry Kissinger saying that deterrence is a useless system, obviously apart from the United States maintaining their nuclear weapons until everyone else gets rid of theirs. Um, I guess in light of Kissinger, who is a very strong voice for, previously for military kind of intervention, um, him saying deterrence is a useless system, how does that fit with, say, the US or potentially the UK uh, adhering to their NPT commitments and potentially diminishing the link between uh, the military and uh, defense industries? Well, uh, Kissinger is one of several um, political leaders. Uh, George Shultz, the uh, uh, former Secretary of State under Reagan. Uh, Sam Nunn, who in Congress has been a conservative congressman, but he's, the, he's now out of the Congress. He was the leader and uh, one of the leaders in trying to restrict nuclear weapons proliferation. The three of them and somebody else, I forgot who, have come up with this repeatedly with statements saying that we should think seriously about honoring our own NPT obligations. The Non-Proliferation Treaty obligates signers, the five nuclear powers who signed it, to carry out good faith efforts to eliminate nuclear weapons entirely. That's Article 6. And, uh, uh, this group, uh, Schultz, Kissinger, and others, have said, look, we've got to think about that seriously. Uh, I don't think that the issue for them is deterrence. The issue is elementary rationality. They understand something which we all should understand. As long as nuclear weapons exist, the chances of survival of the human species are quite slight. I mean, there have been repeated occasions over and over again <coughs> when we've come very close to nuclear war. Uh, in fact, we have declassified US records. Uh, the Russian systems are obviously much worse, so whatever is true of us has got to be worse for them. But there are literally dozens of occasions when uh, automated, um, the nuclear weapons are on automated response systems. So if you know, automated systems detect uh, something going on somewhere, the computers calculate and you get an order to fire the weapons. There are literally dozens of cases where it came up to within a couple of minutes of sending off nuclear missiles. It was aborted by human intervention. Okay, that's the US side. Russian side undoubtedly is a lot worse because they don't have the systems are no good and so on. Well, you know, that's just playing with fire. Sooner or later, there's not going to be a human intervention. Furthermore, there are explicit cases where we've come literally within instance of, instance of nuclear war. I mean, the most extreme case, which should really be studied carefully, is 1962, the missile crisis. That's been intensively investigated now uh, for one reason, because the people involved, like Robert McNamara and others, they recognized how crazy it was uh, Arthur Schlesinger was in the government and called it the most dangerous moment in human history. Uh, there was actually a, a moment there when 
one Russian submarine commander uh, prevented what could have been a nuclear war. Uh, at one point in the missile crisis, uh, uh, Kennedy had uh, established an embargo of Cuba. Uh, you know, no ships could come within a certain distance, and Russian ships were approaching that line. There were also, it turned, nobody knew it at the time, but there were Russian submarines there which had nuclear-tipped missiles. Uh, they were attacked by U.S. destroyers, depth charges, and the commanders of the uh, submarines, who had authority to fire nuclear missiles, same as true of U.S. systems, uh, they, uh, they thought a war had started. Uh, there were three commanders. Two of them uh, decided to send off the missiles. Okay, the third, uh, Vasily Arkhipov, who should get 20 Nobel Peace Prizes, he, uh, he uh, rejected the order. And they had to have uh, uh, all three agreeing so they didn't fire them. I mean, if they'd fired, uh, these are not nuclear, you know, big, huge nuclear weapons, but if they'd fired nuclear-tipped missiles, uh, the U.S. reaction we know from the internal plans was, you know, they do something like that. We take out Moscow, they take out London, and there it goes on from that. You should read the studies that we know what they were. Came that close. Actually, there was another moment in the missile crisis which amazingly has described it as one of John F. Kennedy's great achievements. I mean, in my view, it's one of the worst crimes in human history. Uh, what happened, uh, the facts are known and not debated. Uh, at a peak moment of the missile crisis, you know, just coming to its peak, uh, Khrushchev uh, wrote a letter to Kennedy in which he offered a way to end it. Uh, the offer was that uh, Russia would remove the uh, missiles from Cuba and in return, the United States would remove uh, missiles in Turkey. Now, the missiles in Turkey are much more of a threat to Russia than the missiles in Cuba were to the United States, but that's the usual asymmetry. We're allowed to do things that others can't do. Now, Kennedy was kind of surprised when he got that letter because he had already given an order to withdraw the, the missiles from Turkey because they were obsolete. They were being replaced by much more destructive Polaris submarines in the Mediterranean. So he, had a, he pointed out at the in internal discussion, this is going to be a hard offer to refuse. You know, it's not going to sell in Peoria the way it's put. But uh, he decided to refuse it, uh, uh, be, just to preserve the macho image and to show that we run things. So uh, in fact, they did withdraw the missiles from Turkey, but uh, secretly. Uh, that was part of the process of humiliating Khrushchev. And to reach that goal, he was willing to face what he himself considered a probability of about one in a third of nuclear war. I mean, these are what goes on, these are things that go on in the minds of uh, you know, the, the best and the brightest, as they call themselves. Just think of the rest. Well, Kissinger, Schultz, and others have been right in the middle of this. And they know that we're on the verge of catastrophe. So they're saying, look, we've got to do something to get rid of this uh, destructive capacity. This really doesn't have to do with deterrence so much. Uh, I mean, as far as deterrence is concerned, there are, there are interesting discussions. Uh, one of the most interesting is a very important book uh, written by uh, one of Israel's leading strategic analysts, a guy named Zev Maoz. Uh, it's in English. It's, uh, 
I think it's called Defending the Holy Land. Uh, he goes through, it's about you know, a thousand pages of detailed analysis of uh, Israel's strategic objectives since 1948. And he's very judicious. He gives the arguments on both sides. It's careful. He knows what he's talking about. And his basic conclusion is that uh, uh, Israel's policies have been selected in ways which harm its security. Actually, that's not unusual. That's true of the policies of most states, including Britain and the United States. So if you bother to look at the Chilcot inquiry, you'll have noticed that uh, the head of British intelligence testified that uh, when they decided to go to war against Iraq, it was on the assumption that it would sharply increase te the terrorist risk to Britain. And she points out that the CIA had the same assumption. Okay, we already sort of knew that from other sources, but this is the highest level confirmation. And that's correct, and they decided to go ahead anyway. And the reason is the security of the people of Britain and the United States is not a high priority for planners. It's a low priority. There's plenty of evidence for that. Uh, other countries are similar. Uh, well, in the case of Israel, that's his conclusion. When he gets to nuclear, he has a chapter on nuclear weapons, which is worth reading. And he argues, I think, pretty judiciously and convincingly that Israel's nuclear weapons program has harmed its security. Gives a good argument. And uh, if security were the top concern, I think that argument would be taken seriously. Now, it's that kind of consideration that Kissinger and the others have in mind. You know, Kissinger, and these, especially these guys have worked all their lives on deterrence theory, and they understand that this does not contribute to security. And in fact, it does contribute very likely to long-term, maybe not so long-term destruction. Incidentally, not so long-term, if you've taken a look at WikiLeaks, you know, most of it doesn't tell you much, but there are things that do tell you some interesting things. Now, some of the most important have to do with Pakistan. The uh, American ambassador in Pakistan, Ambassador Patterson, uh, she, she was regularly warning Washington that uh, U.S. actions in Afghanistan, which she incidentally approved of, but she was warning them that these actions are uh, having a dangerous effect in Pakistan. They're contributing to the possible fracture of Pakistan and its uh, radicalization. Now you have to, re uh, the reason is that, you know, like drone, uh, uh, public opinion in Pakistan is overwhelmingly hostile to the United States. Uh, the military doesn't like what we're doing. They're being humiliated, you know. Uh, when, they're, when the U.S. urges them to attack the tribal areas, now that's interfering with their prerogatives, and they don't like it. They know it's not the thing to do. Uh, the drone attacks are the same. And what she was arguing is that, uh, was warning Washington the cables, that uh, these actions in Afghanistan and Pakistan are threatening the stability of Pakistan. Now, Pakistan is a very dangerous country. It's the most dangerous place in the world. Now, Pakistan has a huge nuclear weapons system, which is expanding rapidly. It's expanding more rapidly than any other country in the world. It's, uh, it, it has a radical Islamic element, which isn't a majority, but it's real. You know, if you remember when uh, Salam Tassir was assassinated a couple of months ago uh, for you know, objecting to the blasphemy laws, uh, there was strong support for the assassins. And it wasn't just from the you know, tribes. It was if you, in the pictures in the newspapers showed uh, uh, black 
suited lawyers, young lawyers, demonstrating in support of the assassins. Now, those are the same lawyers who were demonstrating to overthrow the Musharraf dictatorship. They're the reformists. But they were demonstrating in support of the assassins. All right, these are all consequences of actions that were taken in the Reagan administration uh, with two, two clear consequences. One was to allow Pakistan, to help Pakistan develop nuclear weapons. Uh, Reagan was supporting Ziel Haq, the most awful of the series of awful dictators in Pakistan. And the US pretended they didn't know that he was developing nuclear weapons so they could keep supporting it. Of course he was. Uh, the other was radical Islamization uh, with uh, 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 Saudi funding. Uh, 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 Azia was uh, carrying out a program of changes in the educational system, his famous uh, madrasas in which people only study the Quran and become jihadis. And so on. That was all going on from the 80s. It's extended. It's now had a big effect. So you now have a situation with a radical Islamist movement, nuclear weapons, you're provoking the military, the only stable force in the region, which might crack Punjabi mostly, you know, a lot of problems. Uh, and it might, she warns, lead to uh, fissile materials leaking into the hands of jihadis. Those are our actions in Afghanistan. Okay, there's actually an interesting article by, just came out a couple of weeks ago in a journal called The National Interest, kind of conservative national affairs journal in the US by uh, Anatoly Yevin, who's one of the specialists on Pakistan, in which he goes through a lot of this. And his conclusion is that uh, uh, the US and British soldiers are dying in Afghanistan to make the world more dangerous for the United States and Britain. Well, if you think it through, that's probably what's happening. So yeah, that's uh, it's right in front of our eyes, going on right now. The US and Britain are, continuing, are contributing to it. And it's not unusual. I mean, it's a striking fact, if you look over history, that state actions are often taken with the understanding that they may very well harm security. You take a look at the history of wars. Uh, those who started the wars very often lose them with uh, disastrous consequences. And uh, you know, it, it's taken into account because they're higher priorities. Uh, and I think uh, that's the kind of thing that uh, this group you're talking about has in mind. Uh, and I think basically they're right, and we should take it seriously. Well, I think on that note, sober and sobering as it was, we must uh, end this evening. I invite you all to retire to the Jeremy Bentham Room in the main part of college uh, for some refreshments, if uh, to lighten one's spirits and also to <laughs> digest some of the profundity that we've heard this evening. But I would also like you all to thank, me, thank uh, Professor Chomsky again for his speech. Thank you so, so much.